Let's continue to worship, shall we, by turning in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. And if you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers. They will get one into your hands. If you're visiting with us, my name is Rob Willie. I'm the senior pastor here and have the privilege of serving in that capacity. And uh, on behalf of all of us, welcome to our church. We're so thankful to God that um, he has brought you here, and we really believe that. So thankful. And we trust that the Lord will use this. We're thankful for those of you who have joined us online as well, uh, both near and afar. If you're near, we uh, pray and we hope that you will join us in person as well, that you won't remain afar as you are near and local to us, but that you will come and that you will join us and experience what we experience each and every week together. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. We started into this passage last week and we found some pretty amazing prophecies. Like really, really amazing, such that if, if they weren't in the Bible, if they weren't explicitly told to us, I, I might be the first to not believe them. But because they are in God's word, I do believe them, and I rest, in my, rest my life on them, and I hope that you do the same. Pretty amazing prophecies, especially so on the heels of the great tribulation we find here in Revelation 20. Prophecies on the heels of the great tribulation that give us a glimpse of the good to come. After all of the bad of the great tribulation in chapter 6 to 19, and all of that that is yet to come down the pipeline, we find here a promise of better. After all the bad, here's a promise of better. A foretaste of glory divine, literally. Confirming, at least for believers, that our best days are ahead. Our best days really are ahead. Days that are part, check this out, I just discovered this as I was rereading through the scriptures in the New, the New Testament the, the past couple of weeks. The days that are ahead, as we find here in Revelation 20, are a part of the immeasurable riches of God's grace that are in store for us. And that's how the Apostle Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 2. Does that sound familiar to you, I hope? God saved us, the Apostle Paul said, so that in the coming ages, ding, 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 it's amazing, it's amazing. The more you study the scriptures, the more dots are connected, the more it comes to life, the more meaning it has, the more it's impressed on your heart and soul, and the more you want to know. Yes? Just a small snippet here in my mind and heart. God saved us, Paul said, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, the immeasurable riches of his blessing, the immeasurable treasures of his love. In the coming ages, God saved us so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is, in union with him, connected to him, in relationship with him. In the coming ages, and part of that coming ages is the millennium. The millennium, the future reign of Christ on earth. As we talked about last week, his future rule and governance for a thousand years. A phrase mentioned five times in these six verses to probably mean a long time. Jesus will reign. Jesus will reign. You can believe it or not, but it doesn't change the fact that it's going to happen. He's going to reign vanquishing all foes. He's going to reign restoring all order. He's going to re reign blessing all people. What a promise. What a future. Don't miss it. 
Don't miss it. Give your life to Christ. If you already have, believe it in whole. And don't miss the kid at Christmas anticipation of it. Oh, that. It's August, but stores are already talking about it. Shame on them. Don't miss the kid at Christmas anticipation of the millennium. Don't miss the soul-sustaining power of it. Let the immeasurable riches of God's future grace fill your heart with hope and hold fast. Hold fast. The best is yet to come. Jesus is coming and Jesus will reign. Starting with the restraint of Satan, we found. That's the opening of the millennium. The capture and imprisonment of the devil, preventing him from even interacting with the world, let alone deceiving it. Sure, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone who he may devour right now, but then he won't. Yes, he blinds people now, but then he won't. He fights us now, he opposes us now, but then he won't, including his demonic throng. None of the powers of darkness will steal and kill and destroy in the millennium. None. None. How good is that? None of them will lurk in the shadows. Just like light banishes actual darkness, the light of a fire, the light of a bonfire banishes actual darkness anywhere in the vicinity, so too the light of the world will banish spiritual darkness in the millennium. He will literally be here to shine upon the earth, banishing all darkness. It's yet another aspect of God's immeasurable riches and another reason that our best days are ahead. But that's just part of it. There's even more just in these six verses, and I hope to show them to you this morning. So you follow along with me. Let's read it together one more time. Revelation 20, verses one to six. The Apostle John is writing as he recounts his vision of things to come. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. We talked about those verses last week. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ, for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Those truths and those prophecies and promises are so glorious and so mind-boggling, it's hard to accept them, let alone get your mind around them. Is it not? Mind-blowing. The millennium is the future reign of Christ on earth, starting with the restraint 
of Satan and leading to authority and influence for believers. That's the next part of God's grace, the immeasurable riches of his grace. The millennium leads to authority and influence for believers. And it's almost as hard to fathom as the previous parts. When Jesus returns, he will resurrect the saints to reign with him for a thousand years, as in exercise authority with him, exert influence with him. Look at verse 4 again. Then I saw thrones and seated on them, in and of itself thrones, indicating that there is authority there, that there is leadership there, there is influence. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those, now he makes it explicit, those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Referring to believers who are given the responsibility to make decisions of better and best or right and wrong for those in their care in the millennium. Or to make decisions of better and best or right and wrong in the situations under their purview or in their path. That's the authority to judge. Just like the judges of old in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that they were sitting in a court and making decisions that way. It means that they were leaders, that they were exerting influence, that they had been granted by God to do such a thing at that particular time. Similar concept here. I think indeed that's why the Apostle John uses the word judge. It's the authority to lead and guide and influence. And in the millennium, Believers will have it. Exclusively so. Believers will have it. It's just like it says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 and 2. If you're thinking, man, is this like a one-off? Could that somehow mean something different? No, no. No and no. It's not a one-off and no, it can't mean something different. This is where Paul talks about settling our differences with each other right now in this particular passage and embedded in it is a truth that's pertinent to Revelation 20. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? That is, when a believer has a grievance against another believer, does he dare go into the, the secular courts, the public courts, the unrighteous judges instead of the saints? It's a, it's a rhetorical question. The rhetorical answer is no, not if he can help it. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And there, in mind, is a courtroom setting of right and wrong, better and best for sure. Do you not know that the saints, believers, will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? The point for the purpose at hand is that believers are going to judge the world someday. As in, exercise authority, make decisions, and exert influence. Not, not a self-serving influence. Not an egotistical authority like look at me and the, the responsibility and the purview that I have, but rather a humble one. A humble influence. A godly uh, authority for, for his glory, our joy, and the good of society. Just like believers in positions of leadership right now 
ought to exert that influence for God's glory, their joy, and the good of those around them. But in the millennium, it's going to be all believers. All believers. I think I've got five or six little sub-points for you here if you're keeping notes, and I trust that you do. I heard just the other day that it takes hearing something eight times for a person to remember it. And of course, that goes down if you write it down. That's why we give you notes so that you can write it down or you can enter it into your phone. You can go back to it, but you can let the Lord use yet one more means of impressing it on your heart and soul. I trust you'll take advantage of that. I know so, so many of you do. In the millennium, this leadership and influence is going to be for all believers. Every single follower of Christ from the beginning of time to his return, from the beginning of time to his return, will receive the God-given authority to lead and influence the world. Including those who die in the great tribulation. Check out the second part of verse 4. It includes them. John says also, or in addition to believers in general that he spoke of in the first sentence of verse 4. He says, Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. That is, he saw those who were martyred in the great tribulation, killed for their faith, and he saw those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, the Antichrist, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. In other words, those who held fast and died of natural causes in the great tribulation. He saw both. He saw martyrs and he saw all of the rest of the believers who held fast as well. And then he says this in the last part of verse 4. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. In other words, they were resurrected to exert authority and influence just like every other believer in the millennium. Just like every other person who has died in Christ in the years and the centuries and so on before the millennia before them. They too, the believers who were in the, the great tribulation and lost their life, they too will reign with Christ for a thousand years. And I think John singles them out here, these great tribulation believers, to emphasize their inclusion and thereby help them hold fast. As we've talked about many, many times in the last year and a half, how difficult it is going to be to hold fast when the persecution and the heat is turned up. When the difficulties of the natural world around us are going through upheaval after upheaval and people are asking, why God? And shaking their fist at God. It's going to be more and more difficult to hold fast. And I think this is just one more way that John, under the influence of the Spirit, is telling those who are in the midst of the great tribulation, your best days are yet to come. You're going to be included. Your suffering is not for naught. It's not. I think he's emphasizing them for that very reason, to assure them that their lives aren't wasted. That their premature death isn't just like anybody else's. That their best days really are ahead, along with every other believer. Each and every one of us resurrected at Christ's return and blessed with the authority and influence 
to lead. It's a promise found in several places in the Bible, like Revelation 2, verses 26 and 27. If you find this all hard to believe, I want to reinforce this with some of these scriptures. Jesus is speaking and he says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, that is the end of his life or the end of the age, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, a firm hand, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself, Jesus says, have received authority from my Father. The one who perseveres will rule and reign with Christ with power and authority. Same as Revelation 20. Same. Revelation 5, 9, and 10 is another where John sees and hears the elders around the throne that we just got through singing about. He sees and hears the elders around the throne singing and saying to Jesus, you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and usually that's about where we stop. And he adds, as he hears them, and you, Jesus, have made them, these people that you have ransomed for the Father, for his glory, for his magnificence. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It couldn't be clearer. We're going to be a kingdom of priests, that is, ambassadors, leaders, mediating the message of God and the decisions of God and then the desires of Jesus, mediating those things to all the rest. We're going to be a kingdom of priests from all over the world for the world, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. A kingdom of priests who reign with authority and influence. And not just over a few people or a few nations, but over all nations. That's the next part that I want to emphasize here. It's over all nations that all believers will reign with Christ. We already saw it. The saints will judge the world, 1 Corinthians 6. And we're going to be given authority over the nations, Revelation 2. Plus, Daniel chapter 7, verse 27 says, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness, check this out, of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, a.k.a. all the nations on the face of the earth, the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, a.k.a. believers, us, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if he's Lord and Savior, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom, Christ's kingdom, shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. In the millennium, all believers will reign with Christ over all nations. And those nations, buckle up for this, those nations will be comprised of unbelievers. Unbelievers in the millennium. Which means believers will exist in glorified bodies and unbelievers in mortal bodies. True, mortal bodies just like ours right now. Believers are going to be walking around in glorified bodies during the millennium because Jesus has already returned. He's already resurrected us. He's already changed us in, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. He's already given us new glorified bodies as we've talked in previous weeks. 
And so believers are going to be walking around in the millennium in glorified bodies, just like the glorified body of Jesus, and unbelievers are going to be in mortal bodies. You say, wait a minute. Didn't all unbelievers die in the battle of Armageddon? Like, didn't the birds of the air eat the flesh of all men? Revelation 19, 18. Weren't Weren't they all slain by the word of Jesus? Revelation 19, verse 21. Yes and no. Yes, in that all the armies were slain, but no, in that all the people were slain. They weren't. Because Revelation 19, 15 says that Jesus will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, implying that he will kill some and rule the rest. That some will die, those who took up arms, those who tried to fight and overthrow the, the Son of God and the saints of God, they will indeed die, but the rest who are unbelievers, he will rule. Not only that, but Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10, the very next paragraph that we'll get to next week, says that in the, at the end of the millennium, Satan will be released, as we just saw in verse 3, for a little while. He will be released to deceive the nations for one more battle. That's what verses 7 and 10 are all about. Implying that unbelievers are present to be deceived. Unbelievers descended from those who made it through the great tribulation into the millennium a thousand years before. So all believers in glorified bodies that never die will reign with Christ over all nations comprised of mortals who always die. If that's hard to imagine, you're in good company. But at least we have the example of Jesus. When he walked the earth for 40 days after his resurrection in his glorified body, interacting with hundreds and hundreds of people in mortal bodies, even eating with them, sitting by a fire with them, standing by a lake with them. He interacted with hundreds of people in mortal bodies while he was in his glorified body. And that makes it a little easier to imagine because it's already happened. And given the nature of our glorified bodies, just like that of Christ's, it's not hard to see why we would reign and rule over those without such bodies and such abilities. It makes it a little easier to understand at least that aspect of the millennium. All right, that said, there's three more aspects of our authority and influence that I also want you to see. The first is that all believers will reign with Christ over all nations in all the earth. In all the earth. It's implied by all nations in the verses that we already looked at, but it bears emphasizing because, catch this, it's part of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant made all the way back in Genesis. Stay with me here. Stay with me here. It bears emphasizing that it's in all the earth 
the rule and reign of Christ in us with him because it's part of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. True. God told Abraham right around 2100 BC, God told Abraham that he and his offspring, offspring, would receive the land of his sojournings, the land of his travels, from the Nile to the Euphrates. From the Nile River in Egypt to the Euphrates over in Mesopotamia. That's what God promised to Abraham. Your offspring will receive this land. And while the Apostle Paul in the New Testament expanded and refined the definition of offspring to mean all those who put their faith in Christ, no longer uh, defined as, as an ethnic sort of thing, that only ethnic Jews would receive the Abrahamic promise, but rather all those who put their faith in Christ, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, Galatians 3, 7, Romans 9, 8. While Paul expanded and refined the definition of offspring to include all those who put their faith in Christ, the Apostle John expands the scope of the land promise to include the whole earth. Just like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Earth. It wasn't just an, an ethereal, ethic you know, lesson that he was giving the people at that time. It was an affirmation of the Abrahamic promise and the expansion thereof. It's another example. The prophetic promise here in Revelation 20 that we will rule in all the earth with Christ. It's another, and that that's a, a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. It's another example of the, of the fact that God always fulfills his promises, but sometimes does so in unexpected ways. Even massively bigger and better ways than we could possibly imagine. Like he did with the Old Testament promises of a Messiah, fulfilling them in Jesus, unexpected and bigger than they ever imagined at the time, or allowed in their interpretation of the Old Testament, which is why so many people missed him. It's why so many people missed Jesus, because they were so dialed in on their small small-minded and small-hearted interpretation of the promises that God had made that they completely missed the earth-shattering, mind-bending fulfillment of those promises and prophecies. That's why so many people miss Jesus and that's why so many still do. And that's why so many might miss the end-time fulfillment of prophecy as well. Listen, listen, hold your view. And I'm preaching this to myself as well. Hold your view, but oh, hold it loosely. Because when God rolls out the fulfillment of all this in Revelation 20, I guarantee, I guarantee it's going to exceed our expectations and blow our minds more than anything else we've ever encountered. Guarantee. 
Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I can't wait. That's verse 4. Talking about believers. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, in verse 5, John inserts a parenthetical thought about unbelievers, a parenthesis, an aside. He, he, makes, he makes an aside. He's like, hey, a little sidebar here. I've got another thought to express to you. He inserts a parenthetical thought after saying they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, then he says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. The rest of the dead, referring to unbelievers over the course of time. Unbelievers. Because all the believers came to life at the beginning of the millennium when Jesus returned. Keep the sequence of events in your mind. Believers came to life at the beginning of the millennium. But unbelievers, John says, aren't resurrected until the end of the millennium. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Then, in the second part of verse 5, after that parenthetical thought, he returns to his previous thought at the end of verse 4 about believers and their resurrection, saying, middle of verse 5, this is the first resurrection. This coming to life and reigning with Christ for a thousand years that he just mentioned at the end of verse 4. It's the first resurrection. Fail to see that Fail to see that the intervening sentence there at the beginning of verse 5 is a parenthesis, and you'll fail to understand the verse. You might even miss the entire idea and sequence of the millennium and all that's to come. It just won't make any sense. If you fail to see that that's a parenthetical thought, first sentence of verse 5. The first resurrection refers to the resurrection of the saints. Then, in verse 6, he continues his thought. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The one who takes part in it. The one who is risen from the grave and receives a new glorified body. Blessed, you think? And holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death, introduces another concept, over such, the second death has no power. The second death of being thrown into the lake of fire that he talks about explicitly at the end of the chapter in verse 14. Over such, the second death has no power. But they, the resurrected believers, will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. He ends where he began. But not before laying out the sequence of end time events. Thank you, Lord. Christ will return. Believers will be raised. The millennium will ensue. And at the end, unbelievers will be raised. Raised to face the great white throne judgment that we'll find in a few weeks in verses 11 to 15. They'll be raised at the end of the millennium, unbelievers, to face judgment. But not until 
we have reigned with Christ for a thousand years. With Christ. With Christ. I've said it a dozen times already, and it can't be said enough. It can't be emphasized enough. We are going to receive authority and influence in the millennium to reign over all nations and all the earth with Jesus. In other words, he's primary, we are secondary. He's the main, we're the also ran. He's foremost, we are support. He's going to reign and we're going to help on his behalf as ambassadors and priests of God and of him. We're going to reign with Christ. I hope that helps you keep it in perspective that our rule and reign is not going to be an egotistical one. It's going to be a godly one through and through. We're going to reign with Christ and last here, we're all going to be in the flesh. In the flesh. Us and Jesus both. The flesh of glorified bodies. That too bears repeating because it's a point of contention for some. The fact that we are going to be in the flesh reigning with Christ Bears repeating because it's a point of contention. Some people say that the second resurrection in verse 5, some people say that the second resurrection is physical, but the first in verse 4 is spiritual. Spiritual. Except the Greek word for came to life that's used in both verses. Do you see it there? There's one Greek word for that. And that word, for came to life, used in both the verses, is normally used in a physical sense in the New Testament. The second part of verse 4 says, they came to life, ding, 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 they came to life, the believers did, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And verse 5 says, the rest of the dead did not come to life, same word, just different tense, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This, the coming to life in verse 4, is the first resurrection. And it's a physical resurrection just like the second resurrection because that's what the words came to life mean based on how they're normally used. 1 Corinthians 15, 36. Revelation 2, 8. Which means that the assertion of a spiritual resurrection in verse 4 and a physical one in verse 5 is a big stretch. Big stretch. So the point remains the millennium leads to authority and influence for believers in the flesh. Now, I imagine that uh, you're about as full up as you can possibly be. Your mind is in knots, your head hurts, but there's one more glorious truth to this millennium, and it's easier to understand. And it is this. The millennium leads to peace and prosperity. It leads to authority and influence for believers, and it leads to peace and prosperity for all. Peace and prosperity for all, believers and unbelievers alike. It's the future reign of Christ on earth, leading to authority and influence for believers, and worldwide peace for all, worldwide prosperity for all. And after all, how could it be otherwise? Like, how could it be otherwise? With Satan restrained, Jesus present, and glorified leaders leading, like, what other plausible outcome is there than peace and prosperity? 
When all of the major decisions and probably most of the minor ones that are made are God-glorifying ones, are, are the best decisions that could be made. What other plausible outcome is there? More importantly, Scripture indicates as much. Scripture indicates a time of peace and prosperity for all during the millennium. Like Isaiah 11, these scriptures, by the way, speak of a future time, but not uh, the time of the eternal state on the new heavens and the new earth. They speak of some sort of an intervening time as best as the Old Testament prophets could see it from so long ago. Isaiah 11 says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, that's peace, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Peace for all. Or how about Zechariah 14? Same passage I mentioned last week. The Lord will be king over all the earth and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance, indicating prosperity for all. And then there's Psalm 72 in a lengthy passage. And I'll let you look at this on your own. We simply don't have time to work our way through it this morning. Psalm 72 is where King Solomon, check this out, speaks of a future royal son. Ding, ding, ding. A future royal son. And says in verse 7, In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. And there's going to come a time at the end of the millennium when the heavens and the earth as we know it, according to the scriptures, we'll talk about it again when we get there, but according to the scriptures, Second Peter and the like, the earth as we know it is going to burn, be burned up and replaced with a new heaven and new earth. New earth. At which point the moon will be no more. And here's Solomon, 900 years before Christ even shows up, saying that there's going to be a future son, and in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. It's a prophecy of peace and prosperity in the millennium. In the millennium. When worldwide peace and prosperity abound to the ends of the earth, the next verse says. And last is verse 16 of Psalm 72, where Solomon says, May there be abundance of grain in the land, more prosperity. On the tops of the mountains, may it wave. I don't know about you, but I haven't seen uh, too many mountains out in Colorado on which there is grain, amber waves of grain waving. It's a highly, highly unlikely place for grain to even grow, let alone wave in the wind. It's yet another indicator of peace, undisturbed grain, and prosperity. Grain that even flows and waves on the mountaintops. So the implication of Satan's restraint, Christ's presence, and our leadership really is true. The millennium really will be a time of peace and prosperity for all. It's another reason, along with our God-given influence, that our best days 
are ahead so that in the coming ages, God might indeed show the immeasurable riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, fill our hearts with these truths, will you? Like you've never done before, I pray, God. Fill our hearts and, and stir our souls with them and increase our belief, our trust in your word that you've said it. We believe it and that settles it. God, fill our hearts. And whatever you do, Lord, don't let this be a head thing, a knowledge thing alone. Use it to increase our anticipation. Use it to sustain our perseverance. And man, use it to rouse our wonder, our awe. Indeed, use it to magnify your glory and multiply our joy. Kids at Christmas, all year long, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.